trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, programs like this one exist not to tell you what to think, not to flex my mighty mental muscles. No, I am here because there are people who are desperately trying to break out of an echo chamber of sorts. I'm talking about the honest hearts and the humble minds who simply want to understand what's going on around us. And I'm not claiming to have a corner on the market of truth, but I do my very best on a daily basis to find the most credible, partisan-free, principle-based information and to share it with you. And it's a real privilege. It's an honor to be able to do this. Got some great sponsors who make this possible, by the way. They include LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. We live in such an interesting time, and I say that a lot, and I mean it. It's, I mean, when I say it's an interesting time, that means I oscillate back and forth between feeling absolutely overwhelmed, like, holy cow, we are spinning out of control or we're about to drop off the edge of a precipice. I feel that way sometimes. And then other times I feel almost exhilarated because I feel like there are such important historical things. In fact, I, I would say not just historical, but uh, I feel like there are, are things of, of incredible eternal importance that are playing out, and you and I are a part of that. I know not everybody shares that. Some people are like, shut up, man. <laughs> this sucks. I don't want to be a part of this, whatever it is. But I think we have something remarkable taking place, and we have the opportunity to to wield our influence, whatever that may be, big or small. We all have influence that we can use, and I hope that we're using it wisely. That's always at the at the root of what I am sharing with you. And something that's become much more clear to me over the years is the necessity of standing for your principles without bringing more anger into an already volatile world. I've got a great article here. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education site, uh, written by Julian Adorni and Mark Johnson. Three ways to engage in political arguments more responsibly and constructively. Now, I'm not encouraging people to go out there and find a political argument to get into. You know, find someone, some stranger to argue with online. But these two authors have, they, they really have some great points to consider here. Especially if you're considering to fix the blindness of a nation, it would help if we all took a hard look at the beam in our own eye before we try to get that speck out of our brother's eye. So Julian Adorni and Mark Johnson say political tensions in the U.S. are at an all-time high. A recent poll found that 84% of Trump supporters see Democrats as representing a clear and present threat to American democracy. 80% of Biden supporters say the same thing about Republicans. As David French aptly puts it, the combination of malice and misinformation is driving American polarization to a fever pitch. So what can we do to bring down tensions a notch while still advocating for the political ideas we cherish? As a coach who spent uh, two decades 
on working with folks on every side of the political spectrum and a former political op-ed writer who managed to maintain close relationships with family and friends who thought his views on government were insane. Here are three ideas that these two authors offer. The first one is cultivate self-awareness. Now, we all like to think that we're open-minded on every single issue. We see ourselves as dispassionate seekers of truth, completely open to a rational critique of our cherished beliefs. But the truth is a little more complex. As social psychologist Jonathan Haidt points out in his book, The Righteous Mind, we tend to choose our political beliefs emotionally and then try to justify them logically. Haidt uses the metaphor of an elephant and a rider. The elephant chooses which way to lean, for instance, supporting gun control for emotional reasons, And then the writer is tasked with justifying that leaning using logic and evidence. But the key is that the writer isn't looking for truth. They're looking for evidence to support the elephant's decisions. So their arguments are post hoc justifications, similar to how a president's press secretary reflexively defends his actions. This explains why you've probably been in arguments with people who clung to their beliefs even after you rebutted their logical claims. See, for most people, the beliefs sway the evidence they see and not vice versa. As Drew Weston, professor of psychology and psychiatry at Emory University and author of The Political Brain, puts it, the last thing to do is to try to argue someone out of a belief when they're strongly committed to it emotionally. Because that's what makes it so strong is the emotion attached to it, not the facts or the argument that support it. I just got to tap the pause button here for a moment and go, does that not ring true? So when, you, when we argue with people, when we're trying to change their mind, trying to force them to admit, admit that I'm right, admit it. That's why it's not doing any good. Now here the authors say, reaching a place where our elephant no longer leans toward any political camp and we're free to dispassionately evaluate every issue on its merits probably isn't realistic for most of us. Instead, what we can do is recognize where our elephant is open to being persuaded and where it isn't. For instance, if you work for a pro-gun control advocacy group, you're probably not going to be persuaded by anti-gun control arguments no matter how they're made. Your elephant isn't going to lean in a direction that puts your job in jeopardy. That's fine. But you'll be doing yourself and the people you talk politics with a big favor if you admit that up front. And the same is true on the other side of the debate. By leading with the honesty and humility to own your own biases... You can encourage the politi- your political opponents to lower their walls in return. And that can diffuse tensions on all sides and turn a potentially rancorous political disagreement into a genuine discussion. See, that's pretty good advice. Okay, here's number two. Remember, hurting people hurt people. Most of us have found ourselves in political firefights on social media. For instance, when one of the authors, Julian, was a political commentator, he got called a sociopath, a moron, and a corporate shill with the blood of children on his hands. Wow, they went easy on him. But when we're attacked online, our first instinct is to fight back. But what if we responded not with anger, but with pity? What if we saw the folks telling us to die on Reddit, not as a mob we needed to beat back, but as people in intense pain who were looking for an outlet? In an article in Psychology Today, Dr. Grant Hillary Brenner wrote, Well, trolls, to use a dehumanizing term, may be more likely to be manipulative, sadistic, and psychopathic. They may also be suffering, feeling lonely and isolated with no clear socially acceptable outlets. Or to put it another way, yelling at strangers online is not the mark of a person who's living their best life. 
Now, this doesn't mean we should excuse folks who flame us, but cultivating a sense of their underlying pain can help us respond with empathy or even pity when we feel like we need to fight fire with fire. Number three, prioritize relationships over politics. This is a big one. When we're discussing politics, it can be helpful to put the conversation into context. Now, even if you could change your friend or family member's mind on an issue, the odds of that mattering in an election are unbelievably minute. In the 2020 presidential election, even the closest swing state, Georgia, was decided by a margin of nearly 12,000 votes. Now, that means even if you could push your liberal aunt into voting for Trump instead instead of Biden, it really wouldn't actually make a difference. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't vote, but rather you can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that the fate of the world does not hinge on your ability to convince your aunt that gun control doesn't work. What could you realistically achieve in a conversation with a family member who disagrees with you? Well, you could build a shared respect for each other's beliefs. You could bond over points of commonality and your shared love of people and country. You could use the conversation to bring you a little closer and create a moment of genuine connection in both of your lives. That's worth a lot more than yet another conversation that gets both of your backs up. They conclude that to fix the world, we must fix ourselves. When strife between partisans is so intense that large numbers of Republicans and Democrats say political violence might be justified, it's easy to get dismayed. But tamping down the political flame starts with each of us. We must cultivate personal responsibility for how we talk to each other about politics. We must develop the humility to admit our own biases and a genuine empathy for our fellow humans. To fix the blindness of a nation, it might help if we all take a hard look at the log in our own eye. Again, this is from Julian Adorni and Mark Johnson. This is really solid advice. And I know, I, look, I, I, built, I built my early radio career, my early talk radio career, on having epic throwdowns with listeners who disagreed and callers who would antagonize me. And Mr. Snarley, I, I really sincerely hope you're enjoying this conversation because you've probably seen this change more so than anybody over the, the course of my career. But all that arguing... All of that flaming one another, digging in and choosing every little issue. This is the hill I will die on. What did it really accomplish? The answer is not much. I didn't see th- things really start to change until I learned to lose the need to win and to speak the truth with love and let people come to the truth at their own pace. Take from that what you will. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, having food storage is the answer to every problem in life, but there is something very real about the peace of mind that you experience when you know that you have a degree of self-reliance. And food storage is a part of that. Now, there are other things that you need to be self-sufficient in, you know, having some financial self-sufficiency, having the ability to fix or, you know, repair or or fabricate things that you need. That's another level of self-sufficiency. But for most people, the basic needs are going to be, look, we need something to eat. In addition to shelter and something to drink, we need something to eat. So if food is something that is, is weighing on your mind, if you look around, if, if empty store shelves cause you a little flutter of fear in the pit of your stomach, 
maybe it's time to think about getting that food storage program going. The prices are never going to be better than they are right now. Lifesavingfood.com will do their best to save you some money. Like, how about this? 20% discount on whatever you order from Lifesaving Food. Free shipping, no sales tax. There's a little incentive for you. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So whenever I see an article published by Lenore Skenazy, I like to sit up and pay attention. This is a lady who, um, she's, she's been called the worst mother in America. But uh, she takes that in stride and actually, you know, laughingly says, that's me. You know, she is the person who really parented the idea of free range kids. And we're not talking about little hooligans who run wild and terrorize the neighborhood. But we're talking about how kids are being raised today, not so much to be independent. Somebody asked the question the other day, and I thought this was really interesting. How old were you when uh, your parents first let you go outside and play without an adult? And I don't remember exactly how old I was. I remember wandering off at a very young age and, um, you know, looking at this huge gully by where we lived. I called it the big way down. And uh, I was young. I don't know how young, but I know it, it scared my mom really bad that I wandered off. But I distinctly remember a friend of mine, our next door neighbor, he and I somehow were out playing unsupervised and ended up in another neighbor's garage and I don't know what was going through the mind of uh, our little four-year-old brains, you know, what we were thinking. But, uh, man, we went on this this spree of just, we found some milk bottles, and we started breaking these glass milk bottles. I know, it's horrible. We were feral, but, so I guess my answer would be about age four. <laughs> that's, that's when we were outside without adult supervision. Now, encouraging your kids to become independent it's not very fashionable in a lot of circles these days. And Lenore Skenazy says a lot of that learned helplessness is being taught in school. Listen to this. Jody M. is a seventh grade health teacher in a quiet, distant suburb of New York City. She's worried about her students, many of whom have lost their independence and become less resilient as a result of the pandemic. She says these kids are so anxious and depressed that they can't do anything for themselves. Now, Jody's suburban school, public school rather, has responded to this student helplessness by providing even more help, expanding this intervention program originally intended only for kids who did poorly on standardized tests. And what this class did was provide tutoring in math and English, but over the years, it's morphed from academic assistance to more general handholding, according to Jody. And now in day-to-day practice, she says the teachers are making charts for the kids. So, for example, Johnny will have a chart he's given every day, and it will say, this is doing this class, and this is doing that class. Now, prior to COVID-19, the school had one class like this for 7th graders. Now, it has three. This is basically a way of having mom coming with you from class to class, says Jody. Not a real mom, of course, but it is real moms and dads who sign their kids up for this class. Now, Lenore Skenazy says Jody has been concerned about her middle schoolers' anxiety and helplessness for quite a while. She's been teaching for over 20 years, and about five years ago, the issue crystallized for her when one girl came to class late and hadn't had a chance to get lunch. Jody said, well, you can eat here. Just go get lunch from the cafeteria. And the girl responded, by myself? Now, no, this is not a dangerous school. The town is a quiet hamlet. And yet many of her students had not been allowed to go out and about by themselves, mostly because of stranger danger. That's when Jody started assigning the Let Grow Project, a free initiative sponsored by Lenore Skenazy's nonprofit, Let Go. Let Grow, rather. Sorry. 
The project is a homework assignment designed to push students to become more independent and parents to let them. It tells students, go home and do something new on your own. And just by trying something outside their comfort zones, there have been some huge breakthroughs. Kids did things like walk the dog or ride their bikes into town, even use a sharp knife, all for the first time. But since the start of the pandemic, kids have been doing less and less well in class as well as at home. And part of the problem is masks. We did a community activity today, Jody said when they spoke last week. It was the Game 20 Questions. I take two kids outside, tell them a word, they come back in, and their team has to guess the word. But thanks to the masks, the students couldn't figure out the words. No one can hear, lamented Jody. At home, the students are more passive, too. COVID made it worse, says Jody. When they were home with their parents, if they didn't want to do something and they complained, their parents would just do it for them. Because if you think about it, the parents were home also. So what takes less time, doing it or fighting with your kid? Oh, man, that rings true. So Jody's assigning her students the Let Grow Project again this year in hopes of reigniting a a spark of spunk, and this time she's prodding them to go further down beyond their comfort zones. And until they do, these kids are on lockdown every which way, locked down by a culture afraid of strangers, afraid of a virus, afraid of pushing kids to do anything considered challenging, including keeping track of what's due when. I've got a link to this in the show notes. And if, as, while you're there, by the way, you can check out uh, intellectualtakeout.org. This is where I found the article. One of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. But I would ask you, consider this beyond just, you know, the kids or the grandkids in your life. Do you find yourself as an adult struggling to do things beyond your comfort zone? Here, I'll go first. That's my hand in the air. I do. I'm 56 years old. You would think, you know, I would be boldly striding forward with the confidence to do whatever I dang well please. And in some areas I do, but, man, I have to admit, there's there's a lot of places where I'm like, whoo, I'm not really comfortable doing that. So maybe I need to, maybe I need to sign up for the Let's Grow Project or at least implement something similar in my own life. Whatever it may be, I can tell you this. It took me a long time to realize that the the best things in life happen outside of the comfort zone. And I was pretty good at playing it safe for a long, long time. No, no, no. We're just going to, you know, keep it steady as she goes. And no, no sudden moves, no changes. Don't try something new. Don't risk the possibility of failure. And I'll admit life was okay. It was, it was, you know, it was all right. But it can't compare to what happens when you get outside of that comfort zone. And I, I feel very fortunate. I feel like either either God or, or maybe some guardian angel that's been assigned to me from time to time has given me a not-so-gentle push, you know, a shove out of the comfort zone and into something new. But I've learned to roll with it. I've learned to embrace the suck. You know, to, it's okay. This is uncomfortable. This is not where I feel good. I'm, I feel like I'm risking failure. Maybe I am failing at the moment but to keep moving ahead and keep trying. And it's only in looking back, okay? When you're going through those tough times, it's pretty hard to keep that cheery perspective, that stiff upper lip and all that. Pip, pip, here we go. Um, It's only afterwards that you can look back and start to connect the dots and realize 
Okay, that was a rough time, or that was a that was a difficult challenge. But I'm better for having gone through it. And I think losing that fear of failure is probably one of the biggest advantages we can ever give ourselves and realize that, okay, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall flat on your face. The only thing that's not okay is to give up and don't try again. You likely don't need to hear this, but I know I certainly did. So for the sake of whoever does need to hear it, there you go. That's a friendly kick in the seat of the pants. Now go forth and become what you were born to become. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thank you once again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. If you find value in the articles I share, the guests that I have, the commentaries and annotations that I make in the course of this program, I would ask you, consider subscribing to my show notes. Now, there's no obligation. It's not going to cost you a thing. The only thing I'm going to ask is share your email address with me, and I will email a copy of my show notes to you every day when I publish them. It's that simple. I will not share your information. I will not sell your information to any interested third parties. I'm just trying to get as much good information out there as I possibly can, and uh, that's, that's what I live to do. You know, something I've noticed is our sense of reality is being challenged so much these days that I think a lot of us find ourselves wondering, do we really live in the matrix? Well, I've got an article here that was published on lewrockwell.com earlier. Uh, it's from the Z-Man, somebody I've followed for years. And the Z-Man does a great job of connecting the dots that show we are experiencing something which could likely be called the uh, COVID matrix. Listen to this. The concept of a simulated reality or an alternative reality has been popular in science fiction since the earliest days of the genre. Either the protagonist falls through a portal into an alternative reality, usually similar to his own, or he discovers that he's living in a simulated reality controlled by others. But the goal in both scenarios is to discover the actual reality and who is behind the deception. Now, inevitably, that is the point of the alternative reality. The point is to deceive people so they do not notice something important to the deceivers. And the movie, The Matrix, put this to good use by having the protagonist wake up from a computer simulation to learn that he had been living in an artificial world. That world was created by the machines that had destroyed human civilization and enslaved humanity as batteries. Now, the enduring popularity of the Matrix and its many concepts like red pill and blue pill is due to the fact that it touched on a reality of this age. That is, many people think there is something off about this world. People are trapped in hyper-reality, an inability to distinguish reality from the simulation of reality experienced online. The world of the Internet and mass culture crowds out actual reality for many people. This is in part why we see so many people walking around, staring at their mobile device rather than experiencing the world around them. A group of people sitting at a dinner table will be staring at their phones or maybe even texting one another because that online reality feels more real to them than actual reality. Human relations have become entangled in the simulated online reality to the point where they come to define reality for people. 
Now you see this with the intensely online left. This is a closed world that operates by its own internal logic independent of reality. These are people who interact with other members of the subculture on platforms like Twitter. Their outside sources are blogs and news sites that cater to that subculture. A few years ago, someone tried to quantify this subculture and found it was a closed society. So these people are immersed in a fantasy world of their own creation. And the Z-Man says when you examine the online left, you begin to see what can best be called the many false realities problem of modern technological societies. For these people, the prospect of Hitler magically appearing to enslave humanity is more real than their daily experiences in the regular world. They're motivated to act by the imaginary things they experience online, but unmoved by observable reality. Wow. Now, the Z-Man says the many false realities problem of modern technological societies has been brought to the fore by COVID. For most people, the virus has played no role in their life other than disruptions to their daily life by government policy. Most people know COVID to be local politicians giving speeches about something that may not even exist while imposing restrictions that have no connection to reality. Now, on the other hand, the people in government offices have experienced COVID as a genuine national emergency. It has been their war, not a private war, but one shared with other people in the government offices. They check numbers and listen to the latest reports from experts. And even though they're safe and warm, they are sure there's a war raging in the streets to defeat this terrible virus. In the United States, this divergent reality has been made even more plain by the fact that many states did not put on the VR goggles and play COVID. Florida bypassed the mask and lockdown stuff and simply took reasonable steps to make sure the hospitals had what they needed to treat the sick. Everyone just went about their lives. Everyone else went about their lives as if COVID was just a bad flu season. This is in stark contrast to states like California that dove headfirst into the alternative reality of the pandemic. For their political class, every day was a life and death struggle to save their people from the COVID monster. And for the typical resident, it was one bizarre new policy after another, usually preceded by bizarre statements from politicians entirely disconnected from the reality of their constituents. Now, of course, many rank-and-file people happily entered the COVID matrix. Early on, there were women yelling at people in grocery stores about being safe, and they embraced the lockdowns with the enthusiasm of a gamer getting a shot at the latest release of his favorite online game. These are the people stubbornly sticking with the mask wearing after everyone else has dropped the charade. I think I was just reading today about a school district in uh, or a school uh, in Virginia threatening to suspend students for not wearing masks in school, even though all the mandates have been dropped. That's the mentality the Z-Man's talking about here. And the Z-Man says, it's been tempting to explain these divergent realities over COVID as mass mass psychosis, cynical ploys by power-mad politicians and cash grabs by the usual greedheads. But the better answer may be that we now live in multiple realities. Mass society, rather than fusing us into a monoculture, has balkanized us into alternative realities. And those realities provide the spiritual nourishment that consumerism cannot provide. For instance, take this story from a writer in Quebec. He went on holiday in Florida and was nearly broken by the conflict between realities. Now, he is a COVIDian living in a place that has embraced COVID as their preferred reality. In that reality, people are falling over dead in the streets if they dare remove their mask. In his reality, everyone is frightened 
and dutifully following the instructions of their leaders to fight this terrible plague. So he finds himself in Florida where no one cares about COVID. Rather than wearing masks and dousing themselves in sanitizer, people are partying and rubbing elbows at busy bars and clubs. His wearing three masks in public is as ridiculous as wearing an ornamental codpiece. His entire post is a long struggle to to square the hyper-reality of his life in Quebec with the physical reality he experienced in Florida. Now, you'll note that his experience with actual reality did not lead him to question the false reality of his life in Quebec. In fact, you sense that he found a way to use his experience outside the simulation to prove the simulation is real. He was happy to be home, not just for the usual reasons, but so that he could get the constant reinforcement from others who prefer the simulated reality. Interestingly, his testimonial follows closely something observed with UFO cults in the book When Prophecy Fails. His return home to his preferred reality brought him to step five in the process observed in that study. When he was struggling to maintain his beliefs in the face of undeniable disconfirmation, it was the support of fellow believers that allowed him to maintain those beliefs. Now, mass technological culture is balkanizing people, not along the lines of normal human identity, but along artificial lines. People are grouping into artificial constructs like pro-vaccine versus anti-vaccine. The people riding alone in their car with three masks exist in a different reality from everyone else. These virtual identities are as real as race, ethnicity, or religion in the real world. Now, if the alternative realities were isolated from one another, then it would be a good way to keep the peace. Like diversity in the real world, the closer these alternative realities come to one another, the greater the conflict. And the Z-Man says much of what plagues the modern age is this conflict of false realities. People are not just working from different opinions, but from entirely different understandings of reality. So that writer from Quebec trusts the facts of his simulated reality more than he trusts his own eyes, which means there's no way for him to find some middle ground with the people in Florida living their reality. Play this out over every aspect of mass culture, and it's no wonder that everyone is howling for blood. What is at stake is not the petty prizes of politics, but the nature of reality itself. I read a lot of really thought-provoking stuff on a day-to-day basis. This may be one of the most thought-provoking essays that I have read in recent memory. But it really, it, it pulled me in. Because I, I've, I've mentioned this before, and, and I feel like I, I, I find myself wrestling with it every single day. It's like there are different realities, or we're dealing with people who, whose reality is, is entirely different from, from our own. Now, I don't know that there is an easy answer here. You know, my, my ethical side says, look, when you start to use government force to <clears throat> co-opt people or to draft people into your reality, you have stepped over a line. And I'm not going to name any examples because I want people to really question, do I do that? Would I, would I advocate such a thing? These are the kind of questions we need to be asking ourselves. And when you're tempted to use force to get other people on your side... Take a step back and realize that's not a winning move. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. You've probably noticed there are a lot of people moving to the Intermountain West. Now, they have their reasons, but the bottom line is uh, people who are moving here are looking for homes. And if you are hearing this uh, anywhere within the state of Utah, you're looking to secure a home mortgage, I would encourage you get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage so you can get the right loan, but most importantly, you can get it quickly because the competition is fierce for any homes that come on the market. It's a red-hot real estate market, uh, the hottest one that most of us have ever seen. And Heather brings decades of experience in the mortgage industry to your benefit. She, she is there to help you get the loan you need without delay. VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Contact the Heather Turner team by calling 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, go to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her offices. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I feel like I could say we live in an exciting and risky phase of history. And I'm watching the Canadian trucker protest, which is turning into a worldwide trucker protest with a lot of interest. This is this feels like a very pivotal thing that is shaping up, even though, you know, some people might be tempted to dismiss it. I'm I'm keeping a pretty close eye on this. And one of the things that's driving this protest, contrary to the the mainstream narrative, uh, what was it? KSL was was saying this the other day about well, you know, uh, the the there's not much support for these uh, protesters after all the swastikas and urinating on public, uh, you know, on on sacred national monuments and so forth. And it's like, oh my word, spin that a little harder, wouldn't you? Tell us about how these protesters were stomping kittens to death while they were telling dirty jokes and flipping the bird at uh, their mothers. Come on. The bottom line here is people are getting wise to how power seekers and opportunists have played us for fools in order to gain more control over us, our lives, our property, even our, our minds. Got a great article here from James Howard Kunstler called The Revolt Begins. And this is, I'm going to warn you right now, there is no sugarcoating. So, you know, this is straight up, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not going to be soft peddled. James Howard Kunstler says, so it's time to serve notice that the game is over. The nation rejects the phantom president and the cabal behind the COVID-19 hustle and all the woke hustles that rode in with it. The Canadian trucker rebellion rolling east across the vast frozen Canadian prairie blew into the country's woked-up capital city, Ottawa, like the scalding wrath of history, forcing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to skulk off punkishly under the cover of night after bad-mouthing the big rig invaders as a fringe minority in a nation of otherwise obedient hypnotics sleepwalking into Big Pharma's spike-protein fun factory of all-causes early death. The news media is working super hard to avoid reporting the event, of course. Canada's leading paper, the Toronto Star, put up a peevish little item complaining that a protester hung an upside-down maple leaf flag on a statue of national hero Terry Fox, a cancer-stricken athlete who ran across most of the country on a prosthetic leg in 1981 to raise cancer awareness. The paper also mentioned that a discordant symphony of truck horns blared across downtown downtown Ottawa. Ottawa, as demonstrators geared up for their second full day on local streets. But beyond that, the paper lost interest. Canada under the Trudeau government has been more restrictive on COVID-19 than the big gorilla to its south. 
with the population compliantly following all the insane economy-wrecking rules until a recent mandate to vax up every last trucker in the land finally sparked a revolt. Mr. Trudeau's Liberal Party failed to win a parliamentary majority in last September's federal election, and he heads a flimsy coalition potentially facing a no-confidence vote that would drive the PM out of office. But for now, the truckers seem determined to stick around and disrupt the Canadian capital. Their estimated 50,000 rigs could surround the city and create siege conditions where food supplies and other goods won't get in, starving the government into surrendering on its mandates and restrictions. Now, so far, the local Ottawa police have stood by with a very light hand, and there are rumors that they're on the same page as the truckers against federal overreach. Will Mr. Trudeau resort to using the military to break up the revolt? Good luck with that. Like every other advanced nation, Canada depends on trucks and truckers to move everything needed for everyday life. The truckers can just say no. We don't feel like working this month. No poutine or Cornish pastries for you, Ottawa. Then what? Throw them all in jail? How will that help move stuff from point A to point B? So it kind of looks like they have Mr. T over a Molson barrel. But for now, it's a standoff. But it looks to me like the prime minister must resign. And whoever takes charge next will have to rapidly rethink the country's entire COVID-19 policy in a not insane direction. James Howard Kunstler says the Canadian revolt appears to be inspiring similar operations in the U.S., where a movement has started for a massive trucker convoy from California to Washington, D.C., the swampy pivot point of COVID tyranny under the phantasm known as Joe Biden, is a very general way of saying we've had enough of being pushed around by political grifters and their bureaucratic subalterns. Now, this next part really struck me. He says the COVID-19 saga gets darker every day, while the official alibis, cover stories, and disinfo ops bend ever deeper toward an arc of criminality. The U.S. government has lied about every plotline in the two-year horror show. In fact, a conscientious observer would have to conclude the following. That the government's highest-paid employee, Dr. Anthony Fauci, led surreptitiously in the creation and release of a bioweapon that he and his cohorts, along with the pharma companies and other interested parties, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization, enabled the release of so-called vaccines, by which we mean genetic treatments, that were at least as deadly as the disease itself. That as a result of the shots, many people of all ages will die before their natural time. That the process is already underway as documented in the all-causes death data tallied by insurance companies that the same government officials maliciously suppressed viable, inexpensive, FDA-approved treatments for COVID-19 in order to herd the populace into receiving dangerous vaccines, that said officials have worked strenuously to muddle and fake the statistics that would show who is actually dying of what, and that the entire fiasco appears to have been ginned up in order to systematically control the population in ways contrary to our natural rights while killing off a substantial number of us. Okay, that's that's a pretty big blue pill right there, or red pill, I should say. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's, there's the no sugar coating part. So James Howard Kunstler says, let the trucks roll from Fresno to D.C. if they still want to play rough. Think the Joe Biden gang will try to divert attention by starting a war in Ukraine? They don't dare. Think the financial markets will tank? Well, of course they will. No matter what, because the markets and the money are detached from reality. 
He says, face it, what America needs most is, most of all, is to be able to reconnect with reality. And you can be sure that the process will be uncomfortable having sojourned so far from it for so long. Let's go, Brandon, and let's go, Canadian truckers. I know, for some people that may sound like, my gosh, he's, he's advocating, you know, mayhem and, and uh, unrest and all that. I don't think he's calling for violence by any stretch. But at what point do you have to put your foot down and say no more? I can't go along with this. In good conscience, I can't continue supporting this. And it's not just, you know, I, I know that the tempting thing is to focus on, well, it's all Biden. This is all, you know, the federal government. It's not. We have local and state leaders who likewise bought into the narrative. And I know they're going to plead, well, we had no other choice. We had to do what we did. But the reality is they saw no other choice. They chose to go in lockstep with what they thought was going to maintain their grasp on power. It's a very pragmatic move. Machiavelli, I'm sure, would approve, but it doesn't change the fact that they destroyed people's lives. They destroyed people's livelihoods. Telling people, this business is essential, your business is not essential, shutting them down, trying so hard to push mandates on people when it's clear all the masking and all the social separation did nothing to mitigate the effects of this virus. So here's the tough choice you and I have to face, and and I can't answer this one for you. This is something we get to decide individually. At what point do you say no more? I don't remember exactly when that point was reached for me, but it was reached some time ago. And I see a lot of people who are slowly coming to the realization, hey, they lied to us. They deceived us. I'm not calling for vengeance here. I'm not uh, saying, you know, we need to grab the tar and feathers and, you know, have at it. But at the very least, I think we need to see people who made those horrific decisions step down from power or be removed from power through the election process and never be allowed to hold that kind of power again. And for some of them, I think, yeah, they need to face their time in court and answer legally for what they've done, criminally for what they've done. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or you're just wrong think curious, very happy that you have found this program and even more happy that you're giving it a chance. Why do I do what I do? Well, I feel a driving need to help liberate the honest in heart and the humble in spirit from the bondage of the echo chamber. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I'm going to definitely give you some things to consider that may hopefully enlarge your worldview and give you a little bit better understanding of the world around us. More importantly, a better understanding of what you can do. 
to wield your influence as wisely as possible wherever you happen to be standing. Some of the sponsors who make this program possible include MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, and LifesavingFood.com. Thought we could start this hour with a little discussion of George Orwell's classic 1984. If you haven't read this recently, you might want to dust it off and, and take a look. I know we were forced to read it in high school and and it was interesting, you know, it was it was it was good. Over time though, that book has become more relevant and you know, while Orwell was clearly referencing the stark dangers of Stalinism when he wrote it, There's an awful lot we can learn from him about what's happening today. In fact, I've got a great article here from Lloyd Billingsley. This was from AmericanGreatness.com. From 1984 to 2022. Lloyd Billingsley says the gap is actually decades wider because as readers in the USSR and Soviet bloc understood, 1984 was all about 1948, and Orwell was on record that the book was anti-Stalin. The Stalinist conditions of 1948 are now going on big time, in the United States of America. Under Ingsoch, English socialism, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. As Winston Smith observes, only the thought police are efficient. The subjects of Oceania must not only follow party orthodoxy, but show the requisite level of enthusiasm, lest the thought police arrest them for face crime or own life, living in any way at odds with party orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think, Orwell explains. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Children had been systematically turned against their parents and taught to spy on them and report their deviations. This is a reference to Pavlik Morozov, who denounced his father to Soviet authorities. In Oceania, the family had become, in in effect, an extension of the thought police. Children were ungovernable little savages with no tendency whatever to rebel against the discipline of the party. They harass Winston Smith, who has memories of those old-fashioned loyalties. His mother had possessed a kind of nobility, a kind of purity, simply because the standards that she obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own and could not be altered from outside. In the book, Smith recalls a time when there was still privacy, love, and friendship and when the members of a family stood by one another without needing to know the reason. Smith now finds fear, hatred, and pain, but no dignity of emotion, no deep or complex sorrows. Big Brother supposedly watches over all, but goods are in short supply and people must queue up for everything. As Smith knows, statistics were just as much a fantasy in their original version as in their rectified version. Under Ingsoch, Things were as good as they could be, and since the party controlled the present, it also controlled the past. Centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of value. One could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Streets, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light on the past had been systematically altered. In other words, history has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Now, again, I'm going to pause just for a moment and ask you, does that not sound familiar to some of the things that you are seeing happening right now? Renaming this school, tearing down that statue, blah, blah, blah. Here we go. Lloyd Billingsley says the appendix to 1984 quotes the entire Declaration of Independence. And as Orwell explains, in Newspeak, the Declaration could only be crime think. 
True to form under English socialism, purges and vaporizations were a necessary part of the mechanics of government. Winston and his lover Julia pledged to fight the party, but are quickly uncovered, arrested, and tortured. As party inquisitor O'Brien explains, the party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. Not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness, only pure power. As Winston Smith learns, power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes a revolution to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now do you begin to understand me? Well, in 2022, embattled Americans are beginning to understand the parallels. America's liberty and prosperity have drawn immigrants from around the world. When liberty and prosperity were thriving as never before, Governor Andrew Cuomo countered that America was never that great. But for the political class, there was more to it. From the start, they contend America was nothing more than a bastion of racist oppression founded to preserve and expand slavery. Like the party's take on capitalism, America had never produced anything of value, so down came the statues, inscriptions, and anything that might throw light on the past. As in 1984, America's founding documents are pure crime think. Teachers' unions now force-feed this propaganda in the schools, and when parents object... The Department of Justice calls them domestic terrorists. The January 6th protesters are held without bail and without trial. Embattled Americans now face shortages of basic goods, surging energy prices, and rampant inflation. Remember what O'Brien told Winston Smith in 1984. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. He said, we are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. Now, as embattled Americans understand... Runaway government spending ramps up inflation. A ban on drilling and cancellation of pipelines increases the price of oil and gas. An open door for criminals plus restrictions on law enforcement increases crime. That constitutes evidence that the Biden junta is not only interested in the good, not interested in the good of others and pursues only power. O'Brien, who broke the news to Winston Smith, was a member of the inner party. And under Ingsoch, the party is always right. That brings up another parallel with 1984. In Conrad Black's phrase, Joe Biden is a waxworks effigy of a president, but also the face and voice of the inner party, those really calling the shots. That would be the composite character David Garrow describes in Rising Star, the making of Barack Obama. Rip Van Winkle, communist Bernie Sanders, and the AOC squad. Those leftists and their allies are the inner party of AMSOCH, American socialism, now taking a toll on the people. Lloyd Billingsley says under AMSOCH, the past is falsified, statistics are meaningless, and the party is always right. The Biden junta only cares about power, and in his January 19th press conference, Joe had that covered. As he told reporters, the 2022 elections could be easily could easily be illegitimate. <laughs> But don't you dare question whether you know, the election of 2020 was illegitimate. As in 1984, the way things are unfolding now is the way it will be moving forward, and any change would be wrong. Do you now begin to understand? If you want a picture of the future, O'Brien told Winston Smith, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. 
And Lloyd Billingsley says, imagine, too, the angry face of Joe Biden and the current disaster going on forever. From 1984 to 2022, from a free and prosperous republic to a dreary Stalinist Covidistan, all across America, the clocks are striking 13. I know, it's a little chilling, and I'm sorry if I just, you know, threw a black cloud over your day. <laughs> this, is, this is not intended to scare you, but again, I'm going to encourage you, dust off that copy of 1984. You're going to be, you're going to be surprised at the parallels you recognize in what Orwell was describing under Ingsoch and what we have under Amsoch today. And the dynamic is very much the same. It really is about power. It's not about fixing actual wrongs, and it's not about, you know, uh, you know, democratically representing the people. Even the deception, the, the double-think, having to hold conflicting ideas at the same time, it's all there. It was just off by a few years as far as, you know, 1984 was, uh, was a while back. But, uh, but we're living out a lot of what was described in that novel. So I guess that raises the question, what can we do about it? Well, I think the answers are going to be more individual than, than you might suspect. But if you feel like there is something that needs to be done... That's something I would start contemplating on an individual basis. What can I do? How can I make a difference? I promise if you look hard enough, you're going to find a way. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, I would love to email a copy of them to you every day as I publish them. It's very simple. Just go to thebrianheidshow.com. You'll see a nice big subscribe button. It's going to ask you for your email, and I want you to feel comfortable in giving me your email because I will not share it. I will not sell it. It doesn't go to anybody else. It is only for my listeners who want to receive my, uh, my show notes links to the various articles and the various guests that I have on board, as well as uh, just a few annotations here and there, and of course, ways to contact my sponsors, resources for wrong thinkers, etc. And if you would be interested in becoming a sponsor, you have that option too. And there's some, some explanation there of different advertising packages and so forth. But more than anything, I just want to get the information out for those who are looking for a way out of the echo chamber. You know, it's it's fitting right now that uh, it's the working class folks who are standing up to entrenched and oppressive bureaucracy. The trucker protest is a, is a good example of this. And I, I came across an article, actually, a Paul Rosenberg re-released this. He wrote this nearly a decade ago. It's an article called The Working Class is Morally Superior to the Ruling Class. And that may sound like, whoa, those are fighting words, but... He says, I wanted to, to share it. He says, some things have changed. And so he says, I've updated the article just a little bit. And here it is. He says, if you're a producer, I'm talking about you, and I'm serious about this. You are morally superior to the suits and names who order everyone around. I'm not saying you're without your flaws. Lord knows we all have them. But he says, in comparison, you are better and clearly so. 
If you feel good coming home from an honest day of work, if you go out of your way to help family and friends, if you like pointing at something and saying, I made that, if you care about your work as a carpenter, a trucker, housewife, nurse, welder, shopkeeper, clerk, farmer, rancher, engineer, or any of a hundred other professions, you are a producer, and this is for you. Nearly every public voice on the planet tells you that you are beneath important people, but you're not. Those voices are generated by precisely those people and those who are sucking up to them. They play a one-note symphony, and truth has no chair in their orchestra. Now, from here he says, I was wrong about Polycraticus. Isn't it silly that using a name like Polycraticus makes you sound smart? Anyway, Polycraticus was an important <laughs> was an important book written in about 1159 by a brave man by the name of John of Salisbury. This was the book that set up what we call the rule of law, the original version of which was far better than what passes for it today. Now, the funny thing about Salisbury's book is that it was part philosophy and part gossip. In between intellectual arguments for the rule of law, he spent a lot of pages exposing the decadence and immorality of that day's overlords, which were the reality, the, the royalty, rather. And he says, I always guessed that John did that because gossip sells. Throw in a bunch of rich and famous secrets to get the philosophy into more hands. But he says, now I think what Salisbury did was necessary. His readers needed to know that their rulers were morally degenerate. If they had continued to assume that they were morally pure, they would have continuing, continued believing that they were God-ordained, and they wouldn't have placed their rulers beneath the people's law. Now, the same thing was necessary for the American Revolution to work. One of the crucial contributions to the Revolution was a sermon by a minister named Jonathan Mayhew. In it, Mayhew explained why it was not only acceptable, but right and necessary to question the king and to examine his morality. According to John Adams, that sermon sparked the revolution. And Paul Rosenberg says, I think he was right, because you can't get decent people to oppose something they think is sacred. And so it's important to understand that rulers are not better people than you, that in fact they're worse. Please try to hold that thought. Now he says, there are reasons why working people don't want to consider themselves morally superior. But I don't have space for that today. Now, if you want to do his subscription letter, he, he does talk about those kind of things. But he says, what matters today is that you understand this. Like it or not, the overlords are power-mad enemies of truth, and they are worse than you. More than that, overlords believe that so long as they never admit their errors, you'll be mentally and emotionally unable to oppose them. They believe they control everything you see and hear. More than that, they believe you are so deeply affected by guilt that they can kick you into line whenever they need to. And so, he says briefly, I'll play like Salisbury with a few bullet points. We've learned over the past few years that the ruling class is filled with sexual predators. From Weinstein to Epstein to Cuomo to Clinton to Rose and a long list of others, those at the peak of power are not better than us. They are worse markedly worse. Also, the ruling class lies and cheats endlessly. We've known this for a long time, foolishly excusing it as politics. But if you or I did that, no one would excuse it as business. They'd stop dealing with us and they'd take their money elsewhere. 
Over the past two years, he says, we've seen almost every shred of free speech, proportion, live and let live, and a hundred other decencies swept away. The overlords filled the world with fear, and they dug it. They ignored democracy and ruled through executive orders. They intimidated millions at a time. They turned neighbor against neighbor and ripped families apart knowingly. The overlords were wrong again and again and again, yet they never apologized, never explained, and never changed course. In fact, he says, as I edit this, they're still doubling down. Take the vaccine and you won't get COVID. Wrong. You won't spread COVID. Wrong. Masks stop COVID. Wrong. And so on. People are still on their fourth shot these days and still getting COVID. Hundreds of thousands have been sickened or killed by their hurry-up vaccines, and COVID has affected almost everyone regardless. And yet we see more intimidation, more threats, and more insults. And all this leads to a horrifying but inescapable conclusion. We're nuts to obey these people. They lie on purpose. They jump into bed with whomever buys them a few fundraisers. They write legislation for donations. We've known this for a long time, but we haven't wanted to think about it. It calls too much into question. Now, however, he says it's gone too far, and more of us every day are saying enough. Now, he says, I'm not advocating anything in particular, but can we please start facing this situation as adults? Now, Paul Rosenberg, to his credit, asks the question, is this too radical? He says, before anyone gets too scandalized this, let me quote someone who was far more radical than I've been. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Did you get that? If something is high and glorious among men, if it enjoys status, if it is authoritative, important, and respected, God himself is disgusted by it. You want to take a guess at who said that? That's right. It was Jesus. Get a concordance and look it up. Unless you think I'm taking his words out of context, he says, let me point out that Jesus begins by saying, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. Does that sound like any class of people we know? None of us are radical compared to the rabbi from Nazareth. And let us not forget that the God of Christians and Jews has always inclined his ear to the humble and turned his back to the mighty. Paul Rosenberg says, I think we should start incorporating that into our daily thinking as well. So yes, you are morally superior to your rulers. More than that, if you intend to exist in any way that's better than own nothing and be happy, anyone unfamiliar with that should look that phrase up too, you need to get clear on the fact that your rulers are morally inferior to you. Again, you're not morally perfect. None of us are. But in comparison to the overlord class, you are definitely better. It's not even close. And so he says, please, for the sake of the world, start acting like it. And I have read a lot of great stuff from Paul Rosenberg over the years. This may be one of the very best of his essays. And I say that with the understanding that this guy has had more influence on on my thinking and how I present truth than a lot of other philosophers. He's really good. Check out the link to the article in the show notes. Share it if it makes sense to you. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. Family owned business. It's been in operation since 1984. And in that time, it has only changed hands three times. The original founder, by the way, still works with them, services the machines that they sell. And if you know someone who is into sewing or long arm quilting or embroidery or anything like that, this is the place to go. Not only to get your machines, but to get them serviced, to learn how to use them. They offer classes to get your thread, your fabric, all the things you need. It's truly a full service sewing and quilting center. And I know for some people, if you're not, if you don't do sewing and quilting yourself, okay, then this isn't for you. But for those who do know it, this is a huge, huge sideline. A lot of people do it as a hobby. Some people do it, you know, very seriously. You know, just because it's it's good to be able to make your own things and repair your own clothes. And, you know, there's, a, there's an added layer of self-sufficiency. Click the link that I provide in my show notes. It'll co- connect you directly to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. And if you're in St. George, Utah, please feel free to stop in and tell them, hey, Brian was talking about you on his show. You know, I talk about free speech, and actually, I, I think I'm a pretty strong advocate for free speech. I, you know, I'm waving the flag right here. But while most people would agree it's important, there are very few people that I encounter that can explain why free speech matters so much. Well, Caitlin Johnstone says, well, let's back up a second and ask why free speech actually matters. She says, the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy is still going on, and it's only gotten more vitriolic and intense. Claims that Spotify may, must walk away from its $200 million contract with the world's most popular podcaster for promoting vaccine misinformation have sparked a lot of debates about freedom of speech, online censorship, and exactly what those terms mean, and whether they can be correctly applied to the practice of Silicon Valley deplatforming. Now, when confronted with accusations of quashing free speech and promoting censorship, those who support online deplatforming in this or that situation will often respond with lines like, it's not censorship, it's just a private company enforcing its terms of service, or nobody is obligated to give you a platform, or freedom of speech isn't freedom of reach, or by <clears throat> posting the famous XKCD comic which says, if you're yelled at, boycotted, or have your show canceled, or get banned from an internet community, your free speech rights aren't being violated, it's that the people listening think you're an a-hole and they're showing you the door. Now, of course, she says it's true that nobody is legally guaranteed the right to speak on an independent online platform. But even if we ignore the fact that this censorship behavior is being driven is not being driven solely by the wishes of independent corporations and is, in fact, happening in increasingly close coordination with the U.S. government, whose officials openly threaten Silicon Valley platforms with repercussions if they don't regulate speech. The fact that it is a technically that it's technically legal for these companies to silence voices they don't like still isn't a sound argument. It doesn't prove that censorship isn't happening or that the deplatforming is okay. It just proves that it's technically legal for those giant monopolistic platforms to do those things. But a casual glance at history shows plenty of terrible things have been done which were perfectly legal at the time. Slave catchers, wouldn't you agree? All right. Point made. To really answer the question of whether the increasingly wide practice of Silicon Valley censorship via algorithm and deplatforming is a major problem and whether an increase in speech restriction is desirable, Caitlin Johnstone says we need to take a step back and ask ourselves 
why free speech even matters in the first place. Why is it something that's written in two constitutions and upheld as sacrosanct in so many nations? Why is it a value we're told has supreme importance all our lives? Now, she says any debate on, on, over online censorship will necessarily remain superficial until you can address this question at a fundamental level. Because otherwise, you're just bleating noises at each other about free speech without being clear about what exactly you're talking about and why it matters. This is why those debates tend to stagnate. Now, the American Civil Liberties Union takes a solid stab at answering this question by offering three reasons why freedom of expression is essential to a free society. Firstly, that the right to express one's thoughts and to communicate freely with others affirms the dignity and worth of each and every member of society and allows each individual to realize his or her full human potential. Secondly, that free expression is vital to the attainment and advancement of knowledge and the search for truth. Third, that it is necessary to our system of self-government and gives the American people a checking function against government excess and corruption. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says virtually all debate about online censorship revolves solely around the first reason listed, which is essentially that people should have free speech because freedom is nice to have. Now, that's unfortunate, she says, because that's easily the least compelling of the three reasons. If your entire argument boils down to, I should be free to say whatever I want on this online platform because my freedom... It's basically just you laying out a narrative about what you think you should get to do, which holds no more inherent weight than anybody else's narrative about what you should get to do. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater, get stretched into your freedom to say whatever you want about vaccines on this social media platform is less important than the need to convince everyone to get vaccinated. And the conversation stalls out there. Now, she says that changes when we consider the ACLU's second and third reasons about why free expression is important. Suddenly, we're no longer talking about how Johnny Facebook would prefer, would prefer to be allowed to post QAnon conspiracy theories because it makes him feel nice inside. We're talking about the good of a society as a whole. If the case is strong enough, then it really doesn't matter if an app isn't technically part of the government because it's still a part of society. And arguments about the need of the, the needs of the collective trumping the rights of the individual crumble because this is all about protecting the needs of the collective. So how strong is that case? Well, she says, let's take it apart and have a look. The argument is essentially the same in both the second and third reasons for free expression put forward by the ACLU. That allowing people to freely share ideas and information leads to positive change. Now, in the case of the second, it's talking about positive change in society. In the case of the third, it's about positive change in government. But in both, the idea is essentially the same. The free flow of speech lets the collective sort out truth from falsehood and conduct itself accordingly. So, in short, free speech matters because that's how the status quo gets changed. It's how society collectively figures out that racism is undesirable that women are equal to men, that science is superior to superstition, and that the world does not work the way we once thought it did. It's also how society figures out that a government has become inundated with excess and corruption, that status quo systems aren't working and that new systems are required. Now here's the kicker. If free speech matters 
because it's what allows the collective to change the status quo, then it is exactly those voices who oppose the status quo whose speech must be adamantly protected. The speech of those who support the mainstream orthodoxies of the political-slash-media class is vastly less important than those who dissent from those orthodoxies, because only the latter is pointing for is pushing rather for a change. And what we have now is just the opposite. If you adhere to the mainstream orthodoxies of America's Demopublican Uniparty, there's an approximately 0% chance that you will ever be subjected to online censorship. But if you oppose any of those orthodoxies, you will see yourself algorithmically deboosted, suspended, and shoved further and further away from any position of possible influence. This is on top of the fact that all traditional media are already 100% locked down in support of the status quo. You will never see serious opponents of imperialism, militarism, capitalism, and oligarchy elevated to positions of influence in the mainstream news media or in Hollywood. Every single one of those positions are consistently occupied by people who have proven themselves to be at least politically mute, if not virulently supportive, of status quo politics. And for this reason, we can accurately say that free speech is already missing from our society in every way that counts, regardless of what our nation's laws may say. Caitlin Johnson says free speech matters because dissent from the status quo is how the status quo gets changed. If voices which oppose the status quo are consistently denied access to mainstream platforms and aggressively suppressed online, they're unable to change the status quo. They don't have free speech in any meaningful sense because they're actively obstructed from using free speech to do what free speech is supposed to do. Challenge existing consensus, norms, systems, and power structures. If the only way to get your voice into a position of influence is to support the status quo, then with regard to actual reasons free speech matters, it's functionally the same as, as having no, free sp- no speech at all. It's like saying, you have free speech. You can say anything you want into this hole in the ground. Now, there's much more to this, but uh, look. Why do we need the ability to freely express ourselves or to, to freely share ideas, to question the status quo? Because uh, people might take advantage if we couldn't. People might force us into decisions like take the jab or lose your job. You know, things like that. Stuff that we actually see playing out before us day by day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Well, I'm watching with great interest uh, the goings-on in Canada. And, you know, it feels like there's a lot that's hanging on this. I know, I'm, I'm saying this from many thousands of miles away from... Uh, from Ottawa, where, you know, Parliament is, is, the building is surrounded by truckers. The honking is incessant. I did have to laugh, and I've included this in today's show notes. There was a tweet that uh, Justin Trudeau sent out a couple of days ago about, uh, this morning I tested positive for COVID-19. I'm feeling fine, and I'll continue to work remotely this week while following public health lines, public health guidelines, rather. Everyone, please get vaccinated and get boosted. 
And uh, Dr. David Samadi responded to that tweet saying, sometimes having COVID makes you feel like you just got hit by a truck. <laughs> I'm sorry, but ridicule. <laughs> ridicule is sometimes the best answer when it comes to uh, cheeky politicians. And boy, Canada's prime minister is doing a, a marvelous job of demonstrating how untethered from reality the ruling class has become. I've got a great article here from the Brownstone Institute. This is from uh, Lara Rosen Cohen. Trudeau is playing with fire. She says Canadian coronavirus lockdown policies have been and remain some of the most stringent and restrictive in the entire Western world. Now, it may be a Commonwealth thing, given that Australia and New Zealand have also descended into unrecognizable islands of cruel and capricious public health tyranny. So, for instance, in Ontario, citizens are now allowed to eat popcorn at movie theaters that only opened up again earlier this week on Monday at 50% capacity and only because of comprehensive drubbing that the government was subjected to regarding this ridiculous make-believe public health directive. She says life in Canada has been tedious, tyrannical, and indescribably punitive. That is why for many months throughout the pandemic, ordinary Americans and pundits alike have been looking north from the land of the free, at least red states, and pretty much sneering at Canadians, bereft as they are of the First and Second Amendments. The polite Canadians they scoffed without their guns and their freedom of speech were a lost cause. And then one day, Prime Minister Trudeau pushed the nice Canadians a rule too far. On January 15th, his minority government enacted a vaccine mandate for Canadian cross-border truckers, 80% of whom are already estimated to be vaccinated. So the truckers said the buck stops here. They quickly organized a grassroots campaign, set up a GoFundMe, and sent a 40-mile-long convoy to Ottawa, the capital city of Canada. And it's not an anti-vaccine thing. It's an anti-mandates thing. And though the media would claim it's a racist thing, the organizers are a Jewish guy named Benjamin Dichter and a Metis woman named Tamara Litch. The mandates for truckers were the straw that broke the Canadians' back. And the Truckers for Freedom convoy is now camped out in Ottawa, demanding an end to all vaccine mandates and to restore Canadian freedoms. It should be noted, too, that uh, they're doing this not just for themselves, but for everybody. Interestingly, as the 50,000 truck convoy approached Ottawa from Vancouver, Trudeau tweeted that he would need to self-isolate for five days because he'd been in close contact with someone who had tested positive. And as the truckers and their supporters descended upon the city, he was whisked, whisked away with his family to an undisclosed location for security purposes. And then promptly announced that he had tested positive for, for coronavirus, meaning more isolation. With over one million citizens at their capital demonstrating for freedom and thousands of determined truckers saturating every road around Parliament Hill... Trudeau offered no olive branch to the protesters. No, he would not meet with them, those racist misogynists, those Canadians with unacceptable views. No, instead of calming the waters and speaking with the people, he doubled down and began a series of grotesque verbal attacks on the multi-ethnic, multicultural demonstrators with members of indigenous peoples very highly represented. And to add insult to his injury... His federal minister of transportation concurrently announced that not only would the vaccine and cross-border mandates remain, but plans were well underway for government to implement an interprovincial vaccine mandate, especially for truckers. Revenge served cold. After all he has done for us, the peasants are ingrates. How dare the people not appreciate their dear leader? 
Taking a page from the American January 6th playbook, the Canadian mainstream media, largely subsidized by Canadian taxpayers, has chosen to highlight the lone kooks in the crowd with bad flags, precisely one Confederate and one Nazi, and added additional hatred toward the peaceful, orderly, and patriotic protesters. And their American media counterparts are sneering with equal disdain. With the Prime Minister still in hiding, whoops, sorry, isolation, one would think it would be the opportunity of a lifetime for conservatives, particularly Her Majesty's loyal leader of the opposition, to, as Professor Jordan Peterson exhorted, seize the day and put the screws to the Prime Minister to rise to the occasion and lead. But alas, there would be no carpe dieming from the blander-than-margarine O'Toole. And by flip-flopping at a time of national need and not reading the political tea-leaves, he has secured his political demise. He's digging in his heels, but it's over. The truckers haven't gotten rid of the mandates yet, but they now have one notably political scalp to their credit, Aaron O'Toole, the guy who impossibly lost to Justin Trudeau. Now, government rhetoric against the truckers is escalating. The liberal government and liberal mayor of Ottawa are urging protesters to leave, but truckers say they have enough supplies for a two-year campaign and will not be coming home until freedom has been returned and the mandates are canceled. Now, the tides are changing in Canada, and public opinion appears to be with the convoy. Inspired by the Canadian truckers, American, European, and Australian truckers are also starting their own freedom convoys. As unimaginable as it would have seemed just a few weeks ago, Canadians are now seen internationally as a ray of sunshine and an inspiration. So will Justin Trudeau back down and negotiate? Capitulate, or will Trudeau's classless verbal attacks morph into physical retaliation against the mostly working-class truckers, their supporters on the ground in Ottawa, and the millions of Canadians who disagree with him and his sweeping mandates and are demanding their freedom? Laura Rosen-Cohen says, stay tuned. Now, I'm watching this too, and I, I think she does a very good job of summarizing what's at stake here. I mean, I, I looked at the uh, the um, truckers who blocked the border crossing up near uh, Sweetgrass, Montana, uh, coming out of Alberta. And this is kind of cool because this is one I drove through just uh, just a few years ago, coming back from Alaska with uh, with my kids. And it's it's a pretty small, nondescript, you know, border crossing. It's very easy to get through when we were traveling. But these truckers have been there, and, of course, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have uh, sent their SWAT team and told them, you know, we're going to start impounding and hauling away your vehicles and arresting people and so forth. So watch who escalates this. And so far, I think the, the truckers and their supporters have been absolutely exemplary. They have cleaned things up. There, there have been a couple of troublemakers, but the press, when it tries to make it out, is, oh, yes, you know, this hate-filled convoy out there just protesting common-sense, life-saving measures. You guys just keep on spinning. Because every every spin is just digging you deeper into your own hole. And it's it's if you wonder why people don't trust you, mainstream media, this this is one of the reasons why. You're telling us to don't believe your eyes. Your eyes are lying to you. All those flags, all those people, all those well-wishers, all the people offering food and shelter and drinks and, you know, hospitality to, to these truckers. Yes, 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 I'm sure they're all just Nazis, and that's the only reason they're doing this, because they feel emboldened. Wrong. These are people who are fed up. 
And like I say, nobody, nobody that I have seen on the trucker side has engaged in violence. But I see the state gearing up and uh, that flex of, well, we sent our Royal Canadian Mounted Police there to, to, with their SWAT team to, you know, intimidate these truckers into giving up. I mean, this, this could go wrong. But my money is on the state being the one to escalate because it's the only language that it really understands. It's when you have organized force, when you have the, the hammer in your hand, everything looks like a gnat, right? I'm going to get this. I'm going to kill this gnat with a sledgehammer. But don't think for a minute that these truckers don't have a very strong strategic advantage. I've mentioned this before, and it just bears repeating, you know, as you look around the store shelves next time you're in the store getting whatever you get, it arrived on a truck. And if these truckers are willing to shut things down, and if they are willing to stay the course, there simply aren't enough police. There isn't enough military to take their place and to fill the job that uh, that it needs to be done of delivering these goods. So I, I guess I'm warning, watch yourself. You know, you may have to tighten your belt. Things could be in short supply for a while. The, the repercussions could be um, kind of long-lasting. And that could affect us here as well. But the bigger question that has to be answered, is it worth it to stand for freedom? I know what my answer would be. You'll have to answer that one for yourself. Godspeed, Canadian truckers. And to the American truckers considering doing the same, Godspeed to you as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.